Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. I'm not a big fan of those who define the importance of diversity as it's the right thing to do or we just should because that's how the country is. I actually think the case for diversity is that you get better outcomes, you get better decisions, you get more diversity of thought if you have people of different backgrounds in the room with you. You're going to get better intelligence, better analysis, better operations if you have a diverse cadre of officers working on that. If you don't create an atmosphere where diversity is part of how you do your work, you can do all you want on bringing diverse candidates in, but they either will not be engaged or they won't stay. So how do you think the agency is doing on diversity? I think it is doing great. I think there is still work to be done. I don't think any organization ever gets to nirvana when it comes to this. But when I think about in my 27 years there, how much has changed, how much more accepting people are of others uh, than when I started, it's really quite astounding. I have found the federal workforce to be incredibly resilient. So this idea that the federal employee is is not working hard or not responsible or not expert, you and I know that is it's hardly the case. But for some reason, it has become a political football, and um, we believe that is incredibly damaging to our ability to attract and retain talent. Six percent of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. That is a worrying statistic that we should all be concerned about. It means that we are both not getting enough young people in and they're not staying in the numbers that we need them to stay. So when you talk about the importance of succession, we have a lot of people getting ready to or eligible to retire. Yet we have a dearth of young people joining. Murray Park was the chief operating officer of CIA. 
the number three position in the agency. She served in a number of different assignments at CIA during her 30-year career. She was widely respected as a leader of integrity who could not only get things done, but who also cared deeply for her people. Today, Maroy is the executive vice president of the Partnership for Public Service, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that strives to build a more effective government for the American people. I recently had a chance to sit down with Maroy to talk about her career and her important work today. We had a bit of construction noise during the taping, so I apologize in advance if it comes through on the podcast. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Raytheon-sponsored STEM programs empower tomorrow's innovators to follow their dreams. Every day, we work closely with communities across the globe to make it possible. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Murai, welcome to the show. It is terrific to have you. Thank you. Our listeners should know that not only were we colleagues for much of our career, but we're also friends. So it's important for people to know my biases going into this interview. Full transparency to everybody. Mara, you were a career CIA officer who rose through the ranks in a number of different jobs uh, to be not only the number three at the agency, but also for a weekend to be the acting director of the CIA. Um, So there's lots to talk about, but I'd love to start with the acting director thing. How did you end up as the acting director? I had a feeling you would start with that question. (laughs) Well, I actually was never supposed to be the acting director, and there are a couple of things that led to that occurring. The first was uh, that, um, you know, we'd we'd talked, as you know, when um, whenever there's a transition, the director and the deputy director and any political appointee has to submit their letter of resignation. And so we knew at Friday at noon uh, that both John Brennan and David Cohen would be stepping down. But Because the president accepted the resignations. Well, so interestingly in agency history, uh, never before have both the director and the deputy stepped down at the same time. Generally, one of them is asked to stay on for some period of time for continuity because CIA does things and takes actions that must continue. So, uh, interestingly, the, uh, we, as we got closer to that date, no one took them up on that offer. And so we started to realize that probably someone else was going to have to be acting director. And I, I remember huddling in my office with the general counsel's office, and we went through the, the laws and regulations, and we decided that it was the order of succession, and I was the next one in line. So I knew at that point it would be um, maybe a handful of hours was the speculation. Because but, the speculation was that the, the Senate was going to confirm Mike Pompeo on that Friday. That's correct. The plan was he was going to get confirmed that afternoon. The president would swear him in. And so there would just be a matter of hours. External participants also started wondering who the heck was going to be in charge. And so our congressional affairs office started getting calls from the Hill about who who was going to be in charge when when this happened after at noon and they said who is this park person we've never heard of this person before and so later i heard that during some debates on the floor on the senate floor about the hold on mike pompeo someone said a democrat who wanted to keep the hold in place yes 
Someone said, it's okay because the number three guy is in charge at CIA. Number three guy. Yes. So that was me. The next thing that happened that changed that dynamic was um, that as we got closer to that Friday, it started to become apparent that someone was going to hold his nomination up and on the Senate side. And so at that point, what we realized was that it could be actually quite some time. It was unclear at that point when. And I would also add a parallel to all this happening. We also learned that the president elect at that time wanted to come out and swear Mike in on Saturday morning. Uh, This was a little unusual that the president would want to come on his first full day, but he also um, made it clear to Mike that he wanted, it was a gesture of also trying to uh, bridge, make some bridges with the intelligence community. It had been a sort of a rough ride over the previous weeks. Because of some things the president had said publicly. Absolutely. And in the press in particular, there was a, a lot of speculation about the the relationship with the new president and the intelligence community. And we all believed it was important to to mend those fences as, as quickly as possible. So um, we had we were planning for a presidential visit, which we have done many times before, uh, but generally not in the first day of their uh, a new administration. But regardless, as we got closer, we found that um, it was unlikely that, that Mike was going to get um, confirmed in time. In fact, it was looking like the next week that he was going to come on board and I remember calling him maybe Thursday evening. We had a conversation and I said, Mike, um, surely the president's not going to come now. He's going to cancel his visit because you're not going to be confirmed in time. And he said, well, uh, actually, the president is still going to come. And I'm just a congressman and you're the acting director. So you're going to have to host the visit. Uh, I believe I used a few vocabulary words that are not generally ones that I use. Um, but um, we moved on, and um, in the course of uh, sort of a busy 48, 24, 48 hours, uh, put on a visit. I, I would add a couple of things that probably most people don't realize. One is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, the purpose really was to uh, help the president and uh, his national security team understand all that the intelligence community was capable of. You gave of. him briefings when he came out. Yes, and unlike most White House visits— You've experienced them. It's usually like clockwork. They, you know, the president arrives at 8.02, moves down the hall at 8.04. This was uh, a complete, uh, uh, we had a complete control over the schedule. I uh, had trouble actually finding someone to talk to about the, the visit in advance because it was so unexpected. Uh, and what happened was I, I said, how much time do we have? And they said, how much time do you want? And I said, how about two hours? So we actually had him uh, in the building for quite some time. We had him briefed on a number of issues. He met a lot of employees. He met the senior leadership team. And it was a great opportunity to to talk to him about all that not just CIA was able to do, but we were very careful about making sure that the intelligence community was part of that. And so despite um, all of the press that that came out afterwards about the visit, you know, it really was, in my view, a success in that we established the importance of intelligence early on, on the first day of his administration. And interestingly, the vice president uh, decided to join that visit the morning of, along with the majority of his national security team. So we were able to to meet with all of them and and showcase what we were So I think what's of. important for people to know here is that while all the swirl was going on publicly, you saw the visit as a success in terms of getting him familiar 
with the CIA and everything the CIA did and with CIA officers. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective, right, that people wouldn't yeah. normally think, right? That it, everybody would be focused on the public comments rather than the larger picture of the visit. That's right. It, it made it very real for him. You know, you know how it is when you meet the people who are doing the work in their offices, in their conference rooms, you see them firsthand, you see what they're capable of. It changes your view of this intelligence community being some amorphous entity. You actually see that it's made up of incredibly capable people. Rory, can you give us a summary of your career at CIA? Give us a sense to the extent that you can of all the different kind of jobs you had, because you're, you're, you're a little unusual in that respect that, that you've worked in a variety of different places in the organization. Sure. I was incredibly fortunate to have a, a varied career at CIA, uh, a little uh, unconventional in that I started out on the analytic side of the business. Uh, I came right out of college and uh, it became clear to me over time that perhaps analysis was not something I wanted to do for my full career. So I started moving around quite a bit laterally, which was a little bit unusual, especially at the time. And I um, really did some introspection on what I liked to do and what was interesting. And I really was drawn toward support work. Uh, at the agency, we have a very robust cadre of, of officers who make everything work at the organization. And frankly, we couldn't do what we do without them. I love the aspect of solving problems and helping people and uh, being an expert on various aspects of how to get things done in the organization. And so I, it took me a while to migrate over to that particular field. Um, I, I know at the time there were many on the analytics side who tried to talk me out of it. They thought it was uh, sort of a lesser, a lesser job. Um, however, I think this actually spurred me on even more <laughs> to want to do it. And so I, uh, I had an opportunity to work um, within the office I was in at the time doing some support work. I then had an opportunity to work for John McLaughlin as his executive assistant. He was at the time, I believe, the newly appointed head of intelligence, uh, directorate of intelligence. and the head of analysis at CIA. Right. Uh, I did that for two years. And uh, at the time, I had also had an opportunity to meet George Tennant, who was the director, and got to know him a little bit, got to know you a little bit, frankly, in that role. And so uh, I then, after two years with John, moved on to work for George for a year as his executive assistant. Um, those two experiences really made me want to stay. I had been considering leaving the agency. In fact, I had applied for a job outside with the U.S. Forest Service. And really seeing the organization and at the time the intelligence community from those perspectives, those vantage points, really was inspiring and made me uh, even more made, motivated to want to, to remain and continue. Uh, I then spent a couple of tours overseas. My view was that it would be very difficult for me to be as an effective a support officer if I had not had that field experience. It's very important to our mission, and we are a global mission. Uh, so I did that for a, a few years, sort of had a couple kids during that time uh, to complicate life even further. And then when I came back, uh, I had a series of, I guess, ever-increasing jobs of scope and responsibility. Um, I was chief of payroll. I came back and worked for you and, and sort of established a support office under Ran the Director of Intelligence. Ran my business piece of the analytics side of the That's agency. That's right. 
then I became chief of human resources for the organization and then ended up as the chief operating officer. So what was your favorite job? So I'm going to cheat a little bit and give you two answers. The first is the last job I had, chief operating officer, was fantastic. It was incredibly difficult and challenging, but I loved every minute of it. Uh, And so I I really enjoyed that. And I felt like it was a culmination of all these different experiences I'd had at the organization. But my favorite job was being chief of payroll, which probably surprises some people. But the function of payroll is incredibly complicated at the agency, as you might imagine. And it also is run by a whole group of employees who are under-recognized they, they often don't get accolades for what they do. And as you can imagine, most of the phone calls I received were people complaining about pay, not complimenting us on getting their paycheck. And um, being able to be part of that group and help them see how they connected to mission and the important role that they played in the organization was just was very rewarding. So I, that was my favorite job. So, Marai, what advice would you have for young professionals and a lot of the people who listen to this show are college students, graduate students, young professionals. What advice would you have for them about getting ahead in any organization? I, I get asked that question a lot because I, I frankly spend a lot of time with young people who are considering roles in public service for their career. And I I share with them usually a few things. First, I always emphasize that the most important thing to do is to perform in an excellent way. To be a a strong performer, an absolutely great employee whom everyone thinks, I want that person on my team. I want that person to do this particular task. It's it's the bedrock, I think, for success at, at the organization. I think a second thing I would share with a, anyone new is, or, or contemplating this, is that um, as much as it's important to be ambitious and to want to think about what your next step is, to try to avoid the temptation of always fixating on getting promoted. Um, what I have seen happen is people will take a role or a job that they're not particularly suited for and really not interested in just because they think it will get them promoted. And you see time and time again that then they don't perform particularly well and you get into a bad cycle. So I think as much as you can really focus on taking roles that are interesting to you, that you enjoy, and that you, you feel like you can make a difference, I think will eventually lead you to, to success. Personally, uh, I never took roles that simply because I thought I would get promoted. In fact, I took many lateral assignments that people thought it was odd. That I was I remember you role. had to be dragged into some assignments that would actually get you promoted. <laughs> yes. I believe there there were certain people in the, that I'm talking to right now who did some of that dragging. And I was pretty good at coming up with lists for why I shouldn't I remember. get particular jobs. And I was also quite unhappy about being promoted in some cases. I remember. Uh, because I felt like it limited my options. You know, the farther up you move in an organization, the less mobility you have. So, Maroy, diversity of the agency. It's a priority, at least a stated priority for all directors. <clears throat> it was pre- a particular priority for Director Brennan. Why is it so important there? So I have thought and focused on diversity for, for many years. 
and have come to realize that not only is it important for the work, in other words, um, I'm not a big fan of those who define the importance of diversity as it's the right thing to do or we just should because that's how the country is. I actually think the case for diversity is that you get better outcomes, you get better decisions, you get more diversity of thought if you have people of different backgrounds in the room with you. I always found, and you probably did as well, that if you were trying to tackle a difficult subject, you might have a view on it or an opinion. Almost always we did. But you are enriched in terms of your thinking. When The more people you bring into that circle uh, to get their in- input and, and, and takes on things. And, I, and so I think absolutely in, in any field, intelligence in particular, you're going to get better results, better intelligence, better analysis, better operations if you have a diverse cadre of officers working on that. And I've also come to learn over time that if you don't create an atmosphere where diversity is part of how you do your work, you can do all you want on bringing diverse candidates in, but they either will not be engaged or they won't stay. Mm. So I think investing in creating an environment where diversity is valued is the first step that has to be taken. Roy, let's stay on the diversity topic here. As a woman and as a minority, you're a Korean-American. What advice would you have for females or for minorities about getting ahead in an organization? Is it any different from the advice you just gave a minute ago for everybody else? That is a great question. Uh, I, uh, I believe that diversity in my case, the first half of my career... I really ignored the fact that I was diverse. I was raised by my, you know, my parents to be just like everybody else. And so I never really thought of myself as a woman or a minority. I was just another person. And so I worked hard. I did my job well. I followed up on things. I followed through all the things that I would have told any young person at, in an organization to, to focus on. But as I became more senior in the organization, I started to recognize more and more that I had a role to play that I did not necessarily embrace at first, but I had uh, a several senior officers sit me down and explain that whether I liked it or not, I was a role model to others and people were watching what I was doing and how I went about my work. And although my basic work practices didn't change. I still did the things the way I thought they should be done. I did have a different perspective on some of the challenges people face in an organization, and certainly I faced them as well. Uh, I think one of the things that I struggled with the most was I was an introvert in an organization that taught that leadership was essentially an extroverted activity. So for many years, I decided that I wasn't actually a leader. I could manage, but I wasn't going to be a leader. And it it took a while to overcome some of those things. But I think that women and minorities and frankly, um, all people bear responsibility to mentor and sponsor others who might be struggling as they come up through an organization, regardless of why, whether it is race race or ethnicity, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, where you went to school, what part of the country you're from, all these factors that go into diversity 
can make the workplace challenging. And, and it is our responsibility as senior officers to try to help people through that. So how do you think the agency is doing on diversity? I think it is doing great. Um, I think there is still work to be done. I don't think any organization ever gets to nirvana when it comes to this. But when I think about in my 27 years there, how much has changed, how much more accepting people are of others uh, than when I started, it's really quite astounding. I'll share one story, which is um, when I worked for John Brennan, and this is then the last job I was in, we had the head of another agency come to visit with a team. And we were talking about a particular substantive area that wasn't, it was, it was uh, something having to do with data. And the director's conference room is this huge, long wooden table with wood paneled walls. And on one side was uh, the visiting director and his team. And on this, on the, on my side was John Brennan and our team. And I looked around and I realized that on the opposite side of me, they're all men. And on our side, with the exception of John Brennan, it was all women. Mm. And this was not deliberate. He had come who needed to come, whoever the experts were. And I thought, this this is incredible. There has been so much change here that this didn't this was not manufactured. It just happened organically. We're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Maroy Park. Do you hear that? That's a dune buggy armed with high-energy lasers designed to take down drone swarms. And it's just one of the breakthroughs being designed and delivered by an extraordinary team of Raytheon innovators. As part of that team, you'll advance technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure, defend nations, and make the world a safer place. Learn more at Raytheon.com careers. So, Maroy, since you've left CIA, you've done a number of interesting things. One of those things that you serve on a board for a for-profit company, and another is that you help run a nonprofit organization, which, which I want to get to in a minute. But what I want to ask you is, have you learned things being on that board and in working with this nonprofit that would have led you to do things differently had you known them when you were at CIA? The, the thing I think I have learned the most, uh, and let me just address it in two ways. The, uh, in terms of the, the board that I'm on, the, the thing I've learned the most from that experience is on the financial side of the business. Certainly in my role as chief operating officer, and frankly, you were in that role as well, you know that we're, we are responsible really for the agency's budget. There's obviously a chief financial officer and others who are, who are as well. But as the chief operating officer, you are accountable for that. And it's complicated and uh, co- you know, complex. And there's, there are a lot of um, specific issues having to do with the agency's budget. But it is very different from a private sector financial statement, for example, and so there is much that I've learned there that I think I would have applied differently to to the agency in terms of how you plan ahead, how you think, although obviously there's no profit and loss in the government sense, but you still can do planning around with that concept. So I, I think there are things I would have done differently on the budgetary side. 
In terms of the the role I'm in now, I think my biggest regret is that I did not network well. The agency can be a somewhat insular place, and although I had moments, somewhat, (laughs) (laughs) perhaps that was an understatement. (laughs) Uh, and although I had opportunities and, and had contact with, with individuals outside of the organization, the reality is, for the most part, you're very internally focused or you're focused on other government. And I've been exposed in my current role to so many private sector um, universities, so many other individuals out there who have expertise and would bring so much to what we try to do in the government, and we just don't tap into that effectively. So that is something I would have done differently. You know, one of the things that I've learned, and maybe the main thing, is in the private sector, there is a very significant emphasis on succession planning. It is a board issue. It's something the CEO thinks about constantly and works constantly, and that's just not the case in government, right? Because these very senior principals in government actually have a job outside agency to do. So they're not very inward looking, right? And that's one of the things that gets lost a little bit, that succession planning. And if I ever had the opportunity to run a government agency again, there would be a much, much bigger emphasis on succession planning. Does that? Yes, I think deliberately developing people for roles. I remember, I, I think it was somewhat of an accident that I ended up having a series of experiences that led me to be able to be me the too. chief operating officer. That was not by design. In fact, the organization as a whole discouraged that sort of movement laterally. So I agree. I think one difference I would say is that the government, because it tends to have career officers, it can be easy to just rely on that fact that people are just going to be around. And in the private sector, people leave. They go off and do other jobs. And so if you haven't really planned ahead, you're really in trouble because you have no bench necessarily that you can go to. And if you're not developing them, they say, heck, I'm going to go someplace where I get developed. Absolutely. So, Maura, I want to talk a little bit about your current job at the Partnership for Public Service. Um, let me ask you a few questions about that. And the first one is, why did you end up there rather than someplace else? You know, most government seniors end up with, you know, Beltway, Beltway bandits is what we call them, right? Big contractors. Why did you end up at this Partnership for Public Service, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization? So when I retired, I spent a fair amount of time, as most people do, trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. I'd only been at CIA, really, so that was what I knew. Someone very wise suggested that I write down on a piece of paper the attributes I was looking for in a job. And the first two things on that list were mission and people. And way far down were things like salary. (laughs) And because of that, sort of self-reflection, it helped me navigate that process so that I avoided taking on roles that I fundamentally would not have liked. It took a long time. It took six months, really, for me to find a good match. I gravitated toward academia and, the, and frankly, the nonprofit sector because the missions there are very compelling. It took me a while to convince those sectors that I had transferable skills because I think there is this sense that government individuals are not particularly creative or innovative or et cetera. There are many different stereotypes about government employees. But once I did and I had some options there, what drew me to the partnership is I had such alignment with the mission, which at a very high level is about making the government more effective. 
And I thought back to all the jobs I had had, particularly over the last decade, and it really was about doing that at the CIA. And I was attracted to being able to do that and to be able to help on that front across the entire government spectrum. So how does the organization, how does the partnership go about trying to make the government more effective? How does that work? So we we do it in many ways. As you know, the government is huge. We think about it, frankly, as the largest organization in the world. It has over 2 million employees, civilian employees. That's not even including the military. It does not include Congress and the legislative branch. So if you think about it as an organization, it is incredibly complex, but also incredibly important. And we believe at the partnership that the foundational um, aspect of successful government is around leadership. You and I have taught, had many discussions about leadership and what it is. Uh, and we, we've come to believe that all the way from the top of the house, all the way down through the organization, if you don't have strong leadership, you end up having less strong performance. You have employees who really aren't engaged in their work and it, worst case leave because, uh, because they have a supervisory situation that's not good. So that is the principal way that we try to help government agencies uh, increase their effectiveness. You might have heard of the best places to work rankings. We, we manage those. And that is a way to sort of help agencies understand what are their strengths and what are their areas for development when it comes to leadership along with a number, a number of other factors. We also do other things. We um, bring private and public sector together. Referring back to my earlier comment, about my wish that I had done more of that, certainly um, exposing the government and government employees to more of that external stimulus really makes a big difference. What's your sense, you must interact a lot with different government agencies, what's your sense of the morale of the government workforce at this moment who've been used as a bit of a political football, right, in, in fights between the two parties? What's your sense? So I have found the government, federal workforce, to be incredibly resilient. This is not the first administration where we've had government employees sort of not talked about in the most positive manner. Let's be honest, this has been going on for decades now. And if you look at some of the studies that have been done or surveys, trust in government overall has been declining for years so this idea that the federal employee is, is not working hard or not responsible or not expert, you and I know that is it's hardly the case. But for some reason, the, it has become a political football, and um, we believe that is incredibly damaging, and I believe incredibly damaging to, to our ability to attract and retain talent. Do you see that in numbers? Well, so no? interestingly... Uh, 6% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. Mm. That is a worrying statistic that we should all be concerned about. It means that we are both not getting enough young people in and they're not staying in the numbers that we need them to stay. So when you talk about the importance of succession, we have a lot of people getting ready to or eligible to retire, yet we have a dearth of young people joining. And I think there are a number of factors at play, obviously things like student debt that make public service maybe unaffordable. But also I talk to a lot of students who wonder about taking on a career where they, they wonder if they're going to be valued. And what I always tell them is 
you absolutely will be. You should, you know, come in once you see mission, once you see how it actually works when you're inside. We are, uh, the federal workforce is, is so resilient and hardworking and focused on mission that even in times of the recent shutdown, we still had federal employees, frankly, who asked us if they could come volunteer and work at the partnership because they did not want to stay home and do nothing. And I remember during shutdown periods at the CIA, we had employees asking, could they come to work even if they weren't considered essential personnel? So no, you unfortunately can't. Yes, that's correct. Mariah, you have been terrific with your time. Just a couple of more questions. What did you learn from your best boss? No names. (laughs) Good. I'm glad you're not asking me for any names. (laughs) So I, one of the most valuable lessons I learned was that everyone has something to contribute and that sometimes you get someone in the wrong job or that's the wrong fit or you have them paired with the wrong supervisor but there's always something that someone has to contribute and and your job as a manager as a peer as a colleague is to help figure out what that is because if we don't do that then we end up discarding people who may have things to contribute what about what did you learn from your worst boss? Maybe the same thing. <laughs> Maybe. I think that a little humility can go a long way. I think if you are someone who wants to make the best decisions for the organization, thinking that you are the one who has all of the answers or has the best answer is uh, can often lead to not the best decisions. Well, you're going to shut down dialogue, aren't you? You're yes, shut down and you're input. and you're at your own, to your own detriment because you're really shutting down the other ideas that will help you come to the best possible course of action. Who do you think the best role model is for public service? So this is also a trick question, I think. No, no trick, no <laughs> tricks at all. So there are many. Obviously, there are many role models, but. I'm going to go in a slightly different direction on this, which is, um, to me, the most amazing role models are the ones that you don't know, the ones you don't see. There is someone I think of who I've always thought of. Her name's Mary, and I won't use her last name because she would come after me if I did. Um, She was an example of selflessness. She was someone who would go the extra mile. For the job that she did. She was never looking for recognition or accolades. Um, her She was 100% focused on mission. I remember one meeting I was in with, this was earlier in my career. At the time, we didn't have something called the emergency leave bank, which is a place where you can borrow leave if you become ill or a family member becomes ill. And you're sick leave. And so what out. you had to do is you had to go out and solicit from employees, would you please donate some leave for this person? And so we sat around the table. This person was not what not present, but um, we were having a discussion about how much leave had been donated. And she had donated her entire leave balance because she herself had been helped by others and felt like she had, had to give back. Now, I, I had donated, you know, four hours, and I have never felt so small mm. <laughs> in my life. But she... She is just an illustration of the so many, so many public servants who are invisible to the American public and do their work every day on their behalf. 
Maroy, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was Maroy Park. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next time for another edition of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.